episode 144, Hunter Orange. I'm assistant curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an October 19th, 2011 podcast from the Kansas Museum of History. In this series, we talk to museum experts to get the story behind the story about Kansas artifacts. That's why I say. Today, hunting apparel is emblazoned with bright orange, a safety measure to prevent one hunter from shooting another. 30 years ago, hunters didn't care about orange, and hunting trips were open season. Join curator Laurel Fritsch and me as we examine a hunting vest used in the 1940s by a powerful Kansas politician. Then, we go behind the scenes with Museum Assistant Director Rebecca Martin to discuss the museum's new Facebook page. Some argue that the era of social media has come and gone. Did the museum jump on the Facebook bandwagon too late? Finally, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we connect White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the Brooklyn Bridge. Completed in 1883, this massive suspension bridge connects Brooklyn and Manhattan. Was White among the first to cross? But first, Hunter Orange. Good morning, Laurel. Good morning, Merle. Today we are discussing a hunting vest from Douglas County, Kansas, which is kind of around Lawrence, Kansas. Um, and if people aren't sure what a hunting vest is, um, it's usually kind of a durable canvas material that features uh, dozens of small pockets that line the breast and waist. And that's kind of what makes them most identifiable is all the little sort of pockets on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we start to talk about the vest, let's talk a little bit about the guy that owned the vest, John Vogel. He was a farmer, and like many farmers, he enjoyed hunting. Um, Though he eventually found himself on a large farm in the Caw Valley near Lawrence, um, his hunting and farming skills were developed a little further west, weren't they? Yes, that's right. Uh, Who was Vogel, and how did he end up in, uh, uh, in Douglas County? Well, It's pretty interesting. He comes from a very, very long line of farmers. His grandfather, named George V., he lived in Minneapolis, Kansas, which is out west, as you had mentioned. And um, he, in fact, had such a strong desire to own his own land that he ended up walking 93 miles all the way to the next county over um, just to have his own land. Mm -hmm. And uh, he ended up settling near the town of Stuttgart, and that's where John Jr. grew up. Uh Um, He ended up going first to the Kansas University School of Business, and he graduated there in 1939. And uh, pretty soon after that, he married his wife, Irene Shakey, who I'm I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. And um, they moved to her family's farm, which goes back a very long time. It was founded in 1860. Wow. And uh, that was in the Caw Valley near Lawrence. Mm -hmm. And um, there he pretty much um, took over the farming on that particular plot of land. Mm -hmm. Um, But he didn't just farm. 
From 1962 to 1980, he also served for nine terms. That's the equivalent of 18 years in the Kansas House of Representatives as a state legislature.、Um, and during that time period, he spent 14 years as the chairman of the Agriculture and Livestock Committee and 12 years as a member of the Ways and Means Committee. Vogel's farm in Douglas County was recognized as a century farm, and you had indicated that it had a pretty long legacy in Douglas County.、Uh, what what does that mean to be a century farm? In order for a farm and its owner to qualify for century farm status, they that farm has to have been within the same family for a hundred years or longer. Um, you receive a beautiful, like stainless steel sign that you can put out on your farm,、mm-hmm. saying that you've received that status. Of course, you receive a certificate, and you receive、um, a couple of other things as well. But it is a very special honor. There's usually, I would say, on average, maybe ten per year that are designated as century farms. I mean, it's it's sort of equivalent to,、uh, I guess, that that、uh, New England legacy of of you being your family having come over on the Mayflower、oh, or something. Yeah. I mean, in Kansas, this is if you have a century farm, that that's pretty exceptional. Yeah, definitely.、Um, and it's interesting they talk about you know how to qualify. Like who who actually gives out this status? Like、uh, who says you are a century farm? Right.、Um, it is, I believe, the. The、uh, state, de- the Department of Agriculture. I can double check on that. Okay.、Right. Um, the vest is canvas. It's a highly durable material.、Mm-hmm. It contains dozens of these little pockets、mm-hmm. uh, that line the breast and the waist. How did Vogel use this vest while hunting? Like we call it a hunting vest, but why is it a hunting vest? Right. Well, you talked about the small pockets, and、um, they're sort of vertical pockets. So you would insert something from the top, and then the bottom is sort of capped off. Those are designed specifically to hold twelve gauge shotgun shotgun shells. So a shotgun shell will fit in there, you know, just perfect, pretty snug, but. Not so much that you can't quickly get it out to reload your weapon, and、um, you know he John was a very accomplished hunter.、Um, in fact, he won a shotgun in a turkey shooting contest、mm-hmm. in the late 1920s. This was back in his home county of Phillips County, Kansas.、Um, but still, I mean that speaks to his ability as a hunter. Sure.、Um, but around the farm, it would probably have been a lot more useful in terms of just. Scaring off things like coyotes or other unwanted、um, animals.、Um, in general, you know, you're out there and you know you're hungry. It's grouse season. You could shoot a grouse, pheasant, turkey,、mm-hmm. kind of whatever you've got wandering around your farm, so to speak. Perhaps the most interesting aspect about the vest is kind of what it is not.、Um, the vest does not have blaze orange.、Mm-hmm. Today, when you think of hunters. Garments or hunters' vests. I mean, you immediately think of the bright orange coloring to them. What is the function of the blaze orange, and how did Vogel influence its use in hunting? Because I think he may have had a role to play in that, right? Right.、Um, well, blaze orange is, of course, the very first thing we think of today.、Mm-hmm. And、um, but blaze, this vest doesn't have any it, blaze it, orange. It, exactly. Which kind of at first could confuse you. You're like, really? That's a hunting vest? Come on. Um, but blaze orange is designed to protect hunters from being accidentally shot by other hunters.、Uh-huh. Um, and although blaze orange is really highly visible for humans, 
big game animals like deer and things like that, they really can't see that color. And so it allows the hunter to remain camouflaged to it from its prey, but at the same time they're highly visible for other hunters so mm-hmm. that they presumably will not be shot. Um, and it was while John Vogel was serving in the Kansas House of Representatives, and he was the chairman of the Agriculture and Livestock Committee, that Kansas first established a deer hunting season, and along with that, they also began requiring that either red or blaze orange vests or hats be worn by big game hunters. Uh, Because Vogel's vest lacks the blaze orange coloring, many would today deem it as unsafe. (laughs) In this vein, I'm going to list a few famous hunters, and I'd like you to tell me if their accoutrement would be considered safe or unsafe. Okay. Okay, so we'll start out with the, um, uh, you know, if you're British, I guess this is what you think of when you hear the word hunter, the mm. British fox hunter. Mm, yeah. It is a long-established British tradition. This individual usually sports a fancy red waistcoat, right. leather riding boots, and incredibly tight white trousers. Right, and the top hat. Right, and, and a top, top hat. hat. It's true. Safe or unsafe? Well, that you know, it could be considered moderately safe. I mean, the red is very bright and the red. white is bright. However, the black and the white kind of blends in, especially if it's fall, right. into the you know the trees because the trees don't have any leaves on it and stuff like that. So. Um, I don't and know does the top hat thought. get in the way of things? There I mean, you does, go. Does, it could get knocked off. Some, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. That That's kind of a, a close call. Um, I, don't, I don't know. What do you think? I'm going to have to say it's safe. You're I mean, I think, I think the, the bright red is at least a step in the right direction. It is. It is a step in the right, right. direction. Right. All right. Next, we have a famous hunter. Uh, many will probably know. Uh, Van Helsing. Ah. Uh, kind of a Victorian medical doctor. Yeah. And uh, he was a hobbyist vampire hunter. So, mm-hmm. you know, he had his weekend warrior game going on. Um, <laughs> he's known to wear long black trench coats mm-hmm. and carry wooden stakes. Yeah. I. So, oh. safe or unsafe? Well, I have to tell you, I love that outfit. It looks so fantastic when he turns around and drop kicks a vampire in mm-hmm. that thing. Oh, it looks great with the swirl and everything. Um, Finally, probably the most well-known of all hunters, big game or small game, Mm -hmm. would probably be Elmer Fudd. Mm. This historically unskilled rabbit hunter. (laughs) uh, Fudd is known to sport tan clothing, uh, a giant floppy hat, and a cork-shooting shotgun. Mm -hmm. Safe or unsafe? Yeah, that would have to be all around unsafe, if you ask me. Really? Yeah, especially if you're uh, hunting Trixie rabbits. I I would have to say that would be unsafe. It just blends into the scenery. He, um, I think after the 1970s, they actually incorporate Blaze, the red and the Blaze orange, into his costume, into his the animation. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea he did that. Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty interesting, but... Guess I'm, I'm used to the old school Elmer Fudd then. Yeah. I did not know that. All right, Laurel. Well, thanks for telling us about um, the hunting vest. Well, it was my pleasure. Happy hunting. Hi, I'm Laurel Fritch, and I'm here with today's Kansas Quiz question. The very first state agency that was established to control and enforce Kansas laws relating to wildlife and fishing game was the Forestry, Fish, and Game Commission, and they were established in 1927. 
But the agency that regulates these things now is known as the Kansas Wildlife and Parks Department. This was the result of the merger of both the Kansas Fish and Game Department and the Kansas Parks Authority. What year did they merge? Was it in 1977, 1987, or 1997? I'll be back in a second with the answer. Two weeks ago, the Kansas Museum of History launched its own Facebook page. Social media has become a powerful tool to connect people to history. But is the museum too late? Today, we go behind the scenes with Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin to discuss the museum's Facebook page and determine if social media is on the wane. Good morning, Rebecca. Hi, Merle. The museum recently launched its own Facebook page. Can you give us a little background on Facebook and sort of social networking in general? Mm -hmm. Facebook is one activity that falls under the, the uh, heading of social networking. There's a lot of others that people might not even think of. I mean, if you define social networking broadly, email is social networking. Mm -hmm. But the ones that most people think of are Facebook, Twitter, uh, others like Foursquare and LinkedIn. People can, you know, if you don't know about those, you can look them up. And there are many, many social networking services that are offered. Um, but, but basically, social networking is a service that builds interactions between people, and it's usually on the web. Mm -hmm. um, Facebook itself was launched in 2004, and one of the founders was the infamous Mark Zuckerberg. Mm -hmm. um, or was it the two twins? Who came up <laughs> yeah. with it first? I said one of the founders. <laughs> See the movie if you want to know more. Um, but what was interesting about Facebook is that it was originally founded as a way for Harvard students to get to know each other, and that was putting a person's name and activities with a face, hence Facebook. I mean, it was, I think, in print form. Now, today, we have millions and millions of people using a different version of Facebook. What functional aspects of Facebook make it so useful? Like, well, what, what is it about, you know, not... What is it about Facebook beyond just the fact that, you know, I can post goofy pictures? Um, what is so great about it? From our viewpoint as a museum, uh, it's a great way of getting across information on what we're doing at practically no cost. Mm -hmm. All you need is a computer, and then you need to create a Facebook account. And we all have computers here, and we have digital cameras so we can take photographs. People seem to interact a lot with photographs. Mm -hmm. um, so we can get that information out in a lot faster way, too. It's, it's also real-time. Um, we had a donor drop in the other day, and... She had left the parking lot by the time we got the photo uploaded of what she dropped off at the museum. But it's just it's just a really fast way of getting out information. And for us, too, it's a way of building our brand image. Mm -hmm. What is the Kansas Museum of History? Um, what we're trying to do? How does the museum plan to use its Facebook page? I mean, you, you talked about um, uh, a situation with a recent donor who mm -hmm. brought in something we thought would be pretty immediately interesting to people. Uh, is there other ways, or how do you how do you plan to use yeah. it? Well, obviously, we'd like to share our collections. That's one of the reasons we do a Cool Things podcast is to you know, get, get people tuned into some of the really great things we have mm -hmm. in our state's collection. Um, and something we've talked about doing is 
that fast delivery of information. I mean, maybe we get something really neat in the door on a particular day, and before the end of the day, we can get it up on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And maybe later we'll do an expanded story on it on our Cool Things page or a podcast on it, but it's a really great way of getting that information out to people. And other ways, uh, other other information we want to get out or on our exhibits that are coming up, um, any online resources we might have, what's going on here at mm-hmm. our facility. Uh, I think there's a lot of ways we can use it. We're just getting started for the museum um, here, but we'd also like to hear from our podcast listeners, what kinds of things would you like to see on Facebook Absolutely. too? Many argue that social media, such as Facebook, is actually on the decline, as though we've sort of, it's peaked, and now it's beginning, like every... Uh, every organization, it's got its life cycle, and it's mm-hmm. peaked, and it's on the waning side. Maybe not the best time for the Kansas Museum of History <laughs> to jump, be jumping on board. And the, the argument is, is that with the emergence of smartphones and iPads, people are already interacting in whole new, whole new ways. Um, is this true? Do you see Facebook as becoming a less relevant or global mm-hmm. application? Well, it, it's interesting to think about Facebook isn't really global. It's really, it's been a powerhouse in North and Central America and Europe mm-hmm. and other parts of the world's, you know, where there's population clusters. But um, it's really growing right now in India and Indonesia and parts of South America. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really changing and there's no reason we wouldn't want to reach out to those new people. Sure. Um, but um, Facebook right now has. Uh, roughly 700 million users and there's just no way our museum could tap into those people Um, and in North America at the very least um, half of those people say they're on Facebook at least once a day and sometimes two or more times a day right because it's their news it's the way they get yeah that's the way they connect with people they know and people they don't know who Mm -hmm. are in the news so I think um, it's even though it may be declining in the, the Americas, it's still a great resource for us to take our message globally. Absolutely. And the fact that uh, the use of smartphones and iPads, I, I only see that as like feeding the explosion yeah. because, you know, previously it had survived on an established network in North America and South America and Europe, and you get on your laptop and you log in. Well, now you have a smartphone with Facebook application on it. Now you've got access to the internet without necessarily having a laptop computer. Yeah. You have your computer and your phone. Mm-hmm. So, and those are cheap to produce, cheap to spread out. So it's just going to continue to grow the market. Yeah. Um, so how can our listeners get tied into Facebook? Well, you have to have a Facebook account, and you're going to have to go online and create one by going to Facebook, facebook.com. Um, once you set up that account, it's free, by the way. Uh, then all you have to do is search for Kansas Museum of History, and that will take you to our page on Facebook. Then you have to click on the Like button, which has a thumbs up mm-hmm. on the button. Mm-hmm. And um, once you do that, then you'll start getting our feeds. Whenever we post, you'll see it on your page. Right. So look for a little icon of a, of a sort of bunker-looking building yeah. <laughs> <laughs> surrounded by tall grass. Uh-huh. Yeah. Hi, I'm Laurel, and I'm back with today's answer to the Kansas quiz question. The question was, the Kansas Wildlife and Parks Department is the agency that is currently in charge of regulating the Kansas laws relating to wildlife and game. 
This was the result of the merger of both the Kansas Fish and Game Department and the Kansas Parks Authority. So what year did they merge? Was it 1977, 1987, or 1997? The answer is 1987. In 1987, we have the state agency now known as the Kansas Wildlife and Parks Department. Thanks for keeping us safe, guys. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. And Public Affairs Officer Teresa Jenkins. Howdy. Today, we connect William Allen White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the Brooklyn Bridge in New York City. Teresa, you want to give us a little background on the uh, Brooklyn Bridge? My pleasure. The Brooklyn Bridge is a massive suspension bridge that spans the East River, connecting the New York City boroughs of Manhattan and Brooklyn. Now, for 13 years, workers toiled inside these giant tubes, excavating the river bottom to reach bedrock. Workers worked at such depths that often caused decompression sickness, which is not fun. <laughs> Sounds delightful. No, no. <laughs> Washington Roebling, a bridge designer and project supervisor, came down with the sickness early in the process. His debilitating ailment was never made public, and his design and leadership duties were assumed by his wife, Emily Warren Roebling. Formally trained in mathematics and knowledgeable of engineering, Emily became the de facto leader of what many people considered the most complicated engineering project of its day, and I would have to agree. I, I think that's so. Um, I think that's really amazing that she kind of ended up being the person who led it, engineered it. So, especially yeah. in that day and age, right? Yeah. But you know, like it was never really publicly disclosed that what she was doing. A lot of her supervisory work was done as correspondence signed by her, you know, by her mm -hmm. husband. So I have a feeling that a lot of supervisors on the site didn't even know that they were really being managed by Emily. <laughs> and that was probably for the best. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, the bridge finally opened to the public on May 24th, 1883. And on that day, 1,800 vehicles and 150,000 people crossed the bridge with Emily in the lead car. So then everybody suddenly knew. <laughs> so somebody what was going what's, on. This, what's she doing? <laughs> okay. Well, at various times, the bridge has carried horse carts, horse-drawn trolleys, motor vehicles, streetcars, pedestrians, and a herd of elephants led by none other than P.T. Barnum. Right. Some people questioned whether the, uh, whether the bridge was structurally sound or not, and P.T. Barnum was brought on board with elephants to prove <laughs> how strong it was. Including Jumbo, the elephant. Right? Really? I think he was one of them. Could be. Yeah. Well, it's a very famous bridge. Yeah. Now, in, intentionally designed by the Roeblings to be six times stronger than required, the bridge remains fully functional uh, and heavily ingrained in New York consciousness. It's amazing something has lasted that long. I know. Country. that is. It's incredible. I mean, what, that, that was built with some foresight to, you know, I think it's like six lanes to it or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it's incredible. Well, thanks, Teresa. Now to the game. As a contestant, you will hear two chains of connection between William Allen White and the Brooklyn Bridge. You must pick the, the true six degrees of William Allen White from the false. Nikayla, you want to go first? Yes, I will go first. Okay. So at the dedication ceremony that marked the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge, thousands of people were there, spectators and dignitaries, 
And the main event of the ceremony had President Charles or Chester Arthur and Franklin Edson, the mayor of New York City, walking across the bridge to Brooklyn. And when they reached the other side, they were greeted by Brooklyn's mayor, Seth Lowe. It's a long walk. And it, it is a long walk, but a good walk. <laughs> Seth Lowe was a noted politician of the progressive era. And after serving as mayor of Brooklyn, he went on to become the mayor of New York City. During his campaign for that position, he was supported by Mark Twain, and on October 30, 1901, they made a joint appearance that drew a crowd of over 2,000 people, which the New York Times seemed to think was a big deal. So apparently 2,000 people <laughs> was a large crowd in New York in 1901. Um, and this is the same period where there's herds of elephants walking down the Brooklyn Bridge. Right. <laughs> and this 2,000 people was a big event. That's all relative. And as people who are William Allen Whitenites might know. Um, Mark, did you say Whitenites? I did, yeah. William Allen White followers. I don't the know. White Knights. There That's we what go. We call ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Mark Twain had the pleasure of meeting William Allen White in 1907 at a luncheon that was hosted by one of White's editors from McClure's magazine. That sounds good. Uh, so you're using some um, New York mayor and Mark Twain to William Allen mm -hmm. White. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's plausible, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Mine's a little better. One of the more infamous characters associated with the Brooklyn Bridge is Robert Odlum. An expert swimmer and daredevil, Odlum became the first man to jump from the bridge on May 19, 1885. Uh, and unfortunately, he did not survive his jump. So maybe he wasn't an expert swimmer. <laughs> Robert, at least not an expert diver. <laughs> or lander. <laughs> Robert was the brother of Charlotte Odlum Smith, a 19th century women's, women's rights advocate. She was pretty well known. Specifically, she favored, she had a thing for female inventors. And she added, advocated for their inclusion in the 1893 World's Fair and at the 1904 St. Louis Fair. Um, the 1893 was in Chicago, 1904 was in St. Louis. During the St. Louis Fair, Odlum was a bit of a promotionalist, and in order to attract publicity, she invited the wife, the wives of regional editors to include Sally Lindsay, who was the young wife of nationally known newspaper editor William Allen White. Wow. You've given me two times of choices. <laughs> Um, you can go with lame Mark Twain, or you can go with a guy who jumped to his death. You can go well, with the right answer, or you can go with a fabricated answer. Well, I know more about William Allen White, and so that certainly does sound plausible, as Merle said. And I don't know as much about Sally. So, an oddlum is just too odd. So, based on the name alone, it's the name. I'm going with Nicholas. That is correct. Oh, mine, right. mine is the uh, the fictional the fictional William L. White tale, as usual. But I wish it were true. That sounds great. I know it is fun. No, I mean that that really that guy really did jump from the bridge, well, yeah. and his wife or his sister really was an advocate for women's rights. But um, and she was involved in the Columbian Exposition, 1893 World's Fair. We but don't know that she invited Sally. Okay. No, I have no possible. idea. Odlum's death sounds. Horrible. Oh, it was. Cool. It was some internal injuries, and he woke yeah. up. Yeah. Towards the, they rescued yeah. him, and he woke oh, up. No. Yeah. And he asked. He asked if he was successful. If it was a good jump. Right. And then he asked, "Why am I spitting up blood?" And <laughs> then he died. They told him it was brandy. Well, what are you going to tell him? <laughs> All right, uh, Nikayla, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. Next week, we connect William Allen White to the Brandenburg Gate, located in Berlin. 
This stone gate was once seen as the embodiment of Cold War's Iron Curtain. Today, it is embraced as Germany's most recognizable icon. So, did White once visit Berlin only to find out that the Brandenburg Gate isn't really a gate to anything? Uh, find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. That concludes episode 144, Hunter Orange. If you would like to see images of this pre-orange hunting vest, go to our website, kshs.org. Let us hear from you. Post a comment on our Kansas Museum of History Facebook page or complete a podcast survey from our website. Come back in two weeks when curator Rebecca Martin examines a sales model dental chair. Did this tiny dental chair require a tiny dentist? This podcast is a production of the Kansas Museum of History. Real people, real stories. Real stories.